0: Today we're going to be in Galatians. We've been journeying through this particular um, New Testament letter. Uh, we're referring to it. I'm titling it The Gospel Revisited. Um, two parts to that, and one as a personal level in that we went through this particular book, a letter, in 2020, the latter part of the year. And so it's listed on our webpage under sermons, and then um, there's a series called set, uh, a Free at Last series, so you can... Catch that because we're reviewing some of those things, but I'm just going to do a different this time through. I'm going to go kind of catching some high points or key points, and so kind of think of it this way: Um, if you've ever went into an area, I went into an area years ago, um, just kind of checking it out, you know. So I looked on a map, I seen what was there, and you know I was going to go hunting, so I wanted to kind of explore the area a little bit. I found it on the map, and then I drove to a ridgeline where I could see the area. And then I, you know, got on my feet on the ground and kind of walked around a little bit. Uh, we're doing more of that overview of kind of an approach, kind of looking at it and seeing it and then pulling from stuff out. That's why I mentioned to you to go to the series to catch chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Literally it was a Sunday night and a Wednesday night series, and we covered it more in depth for your own personal studies. Today we're gonna to follow along with what I've introduced on in the first two chapters, and I'll carry this through this particular letter. And that as we look at it, we, we can see three things that have application or have at least an uh, observation in each chapter. And I, I introduced it this way, the truth, the trouble, and the transformation. So there's a truth that we'll kind of draw our attention to. There's a trial or trouble that always, you'll always find this. As you embrace a particular truth, there's a trial and a challenge into putting it into practice. But the result of putting that into practice is this, what we call transformation. Our lives are changed. See, if we can gather together or we can, you know, sit down even privately and read the Word of God, and it does not change our life in any way, why did we read it? Is it just to collect information? Because I would suggest to you, the Bible teaches, and Jesus presented to his disciples, This knowing the word of God, knowing the person, God himself, is not to gather information, it's to usher in transformation. It's to literally to change us from the inside out, which is what we look forward to, I believe, is why we gather together, why we we worship, but we're really looking to have an experience, an encounter with the living God based upon his word. So with that, I want to pray. For the message as we approach this particular chapter, that our hearts should be prepared. God, we are so thankful that we can acknowledge your presence in our lives. And more than acknowledgement, Lord, is this awareness of your grace and your love. And and the gifts that you give us. You give us the gift of faith. The capacity and the ability to believe. And you even show us what that means, what that looks like, God. God. And so we do thank you. We believe, God, as we would look into your word, as we would direct our our eyes and our ears, our mind and our hearts to your word. we, We know, God, we need your help. You've told us that, that the natural man cannot figure this out, cannot discern, for these things are spiritually discerned. And so I would ask, God, that each one of us that's here today, each one of us that hears this message that you would prepare our hearts, you would clear our minds, you would free us from any perceptions or experiences or um, behavior that would, would cause us to categorize this portion of Scripture or see it from the past. May you make it known to us today how we, God, could walk in truth, can live this love that you placed within us, that it could, we could live it out in such a way that your light shines in us and through us. And so, God, thank you that you'll teach us your word today. You'll empower us to live according to it. You will transform us, shaping us and conforming us into your image and likeness. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, we, as I mentioned, where there's three parts, the truth, the trial, the transformation. I want to look at the, the trial first. This particular letter at this point, chapter 3. God has wrote, brought his word forth through the heart of Paul. He has put that word on his heart and brought it through his hand, his pen, so to speak, bringing in Paul's personal experience, who he is as his personality and as an individual. And so the first two chapters, these truths are being brought forth about the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's, it's involving even Paul's experience. So he's, he's bringing this truth He's sharing his own experience, so to speak, if if you would, as far as in relation to this truth. And now in chapter 3, he's kind of calling them out, so to speak, in a good way. Because what's happened is this false teaching had crept in. You could summarize it by calling it the gospel plus. So it's the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and then you got to do this. And then you must do that. And so the gospel plus is a bad deal. There's never any plus. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to see today is how he addresses this. So we're going to begin in chapter 3. We'll read verses 1 through 5. Then we'll read a portion towards the end. And then we'll kind of see how these tie together under these three um, thoughts and and points. First one, let's take a look in chapter 3 of Galatians, beginning in verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And so Paul is addressing something that's a, it's a difficult thing, you know. Um, it's important, and that's why he's addressing it. We've all had to bring up um, something or sit down with someone to discuss something that's awkward but important, Correct. And they're difficult, but they're they're important things. And you may relate it to even, you know, relational stuff, financial stuff, you know, just a wide range of, of things that we work through. But I believe we can see when you consider the rest of Scripture, when you consider what God's conveying about himself and how his people know him, I believe we can see that Paul loves God and loves people enough that he addresses a serious matter in a straightforward way. So he's not really calling them names like, you fool. He's literally addressing your actions. What you're doing is actually foolish. And and, and more than just addressing it that way, he's actually appealing to their logic. It's like, so how did this come about? How did you get started? What is your relationship with God that you would now deviate from the form of engagement or interaction into this other type of relating to God? And so he, it's really, I think it's interesting because he's he's appealing to their experience. Now, I want to just say something before we dig into this. When you read the Bible, you'll see personalities and characters throughout history from Genesis to, well, we can even look forward to Revelation and some that are mentioned. But what you'll see there is many people start well. Agreed? They have a relationship, but there's something happens, and they come into this, this knowledge of God, of the living God. Many have started good, but then they began to wander off course. Many don't finish well. There's many in the Old Testament, and actually there's enough, quite a few even in the New Testament, that indicate that you can start good, but end up off course. And I don't think it's just something that happens to you outside of your own awareness i believe that there's some things that should be put in motion on an individual basis i do it this way i tell myself and i remind myself actually regularly you know i want to set my mind to finish well because it really involves a certain element of free will right you can't just say well i just hope i think i'm just going to trust god that he will get me to where i need to go you know, that sounds so deep in faith and so, so amazing. It's so silly. And you're like, oh, what, did he just say I'm not supposed to trust God? No, but when we say, I'm just going to trust God that he'll work it out. Well, yeah, you are. And you're going to actually put your feet in motion. There's a point where you have to do something. Because sometimes when we say things like, I'm just going to trust God. I don't know what to do. Sometimes we're actually saying, I'd rather not do anything. And I don't want to figure out what I should do. So I'm just going to sit here, and if it doesn't work out, it's not my fault. It's really weird, honest. If you think about it, there's an element of a relationship. You know, I wouldn't say to my wife, "Well, I'll just trust you to take care of it," and not give her any, and not have any engagement, any communication, not any involvement. We would have, I hope, a a gracious and kind, and you know, maybe even challenging conversation, because you know we want to get to the same spot. I hope that makes sense, because I know sometimes. It, it, it just seems easier to say, well, I just think it'll work out in the end. God's got this. And I, I don't, I'm not saying those are bad statements. I'm just saying that you have a part. King Saul could say, I just trust in God. Gonna, I'm going to end well, finish well. It'll work out well. I'm going to go do whatever. And it didn't work well. Uh, Solomon started good. Didn't end well. Because there were some parts where we know what he do. He made choices. So I want to encourage you. It's not a complicated thing, it's just a simple thing. Just, God, teach me how to trust you. Teach me, because I really want to finish well. You know, many of us can just reflect, maybe with some sorrow, even, on wonderful friends and great relationships we've had, but they went south so to speak some have just deviated from the course and they've wandered off course and they according to what the bible tells us they've shipwrecked their faith and it's sad to see but the bible tells you and me be careful where you stand lest you fall don't be one of those don't don't go that at least have the wisdom to say wow that is really sad i don't want to repeat that pattern I want to finish well. So I, I take it very seriously, uh, sober-mindedly, I, want to, I do want to finish well. And I, know, I don't live in a fearful sense. It's like I know he's going to lead me, which is we'll see in this particular text. Notice as he's saying to them, who's bewitched you? He's like, Who, who's tricked you? Who's beguiled you? One translation uses the word to describe. You should not obey the truth. What was the truth of the gospel? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. There is no other means by which, another no manner by which a man can be saved but through Jesus Christ. So that was the good news. That was the, that is the gospel. And he's saying, you guys, you've you've deviated from that and you've added on to it. And he's saying it was obvious to you when he was there, when Paul had talked to some of those, those who had took hold of the truth, he knew that they, they got it. It says that who's before your eyes, Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Now, you know, and I know that wasn't, they didn't have a YouTube of the crucifixion. You know what I'm saying? They didn't get a replay. So what's being said? The truth was so clear to you and so, you know, obvious and evident. It was like you've seen what? The crucifixion. That he died for your sins. That he rose again. It was so obvious that you didn't add anything to it. You understood, man, this is great news. This is the gospel. So he says, but who who crept in? And I love the reasoning because it appeals to you and I. Straightforward, real simple, not not condemning in any way. Well, this I'd like to learn from you, verse 2. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Did you begin your spiritual journey the true journey where you're born again because you were obedient and you did a lot of good things because you're born in America and you choose to be ethical and you focused on morality and you just choose to live a good life. And because you're living a good life, God's, God's glad for you. Did you begin that way? Some of us have that perception, but we didn't, we didn't begin this way. We were born again because we responded to the grace of God. The grace of God, unmerited favor, opened our eyes to our individual sin, and it's dark. So dark that we don't even want to talk about it. Personal, private sin. But that we know it's his grace because he opened our eyes to the truth of our own sinfulness. And if it wasn't his doing, we would have cowered in despondency and depression because of the reality of who we really are. But we didn't do that. Because he opens our eyes to the truth of our need of a savior. When we opens our eyes, right at that moment, the instantaneous moment that we realize we're sinners, we're aware of salvation. He brings us to him. It's really funny because contemporary terminology, we speak of, I accepted Christ, right? Turn to Christ. and Inadvertently, we put the emphasis upon ourselves. You know what we did? We were smart enough to receive something we couldn't turn down. Does that sound weird? Because it's almost like you had no choice. And I I do believe that, and don't go doctrinally weird on me, but here, let me explain. I didn't have a choice to reject the gospel in this way of thinking. So if we set up in the lobby this phenomenal buffet with some of the most amazing meats and, for some of you, other non-meats, And desserts and whatever your thing is. I mean, it's the most phenomenal thing you can imagine. You can smell it right now. Just pretend. We got that. You can choose from that. Or we got some old pizza boxes with a few veggies and onions and crust laying in the garbage can out here in the dumpster. Now, the choice is yours. Who's going to choose the dumpster? Nobody. But it's your choice. If one is so good and one you understand is like not my choice... You're not being forced into it. You're making an intelligent, I mean, I want this. That is really the reality. When God opened the truth of the gospel to your heart and your own sin, when you turned to him and said, God, I need you, it wasn't because you deduced and logically arranged and realized guilt and shame and reward. No, none of that. You responded to the good work of God in such a way You're like, man, this is amazing. And so that's what Paul's appealing. Listen, Are you going to now, that you've responded to the work of God because he's a good and gracious God, are you now going to finish on your own? You who began in the Spirit, are you going to keep this going of your own effort? And, and that's really what he's appealing to him. He says, verse 3, are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, you're now being made perfect by the flesh. Like, I'm glad God got me started, but I can take it from here. And you know, you may think this doesn't apply to you, but it probably does. Because most of us, subconsciously, there's a part of us, we, we just struggle with someone helping us out. Is that not true? When somebody helps you, you feel obligated to them. You have an indebtedness to them. You have like, oh, man. We, it's just I, I, I used to think it was a gender thing. You know, like guys were more tilted this way. It's not true. They're, it doesn't matter who, which male or female, whichever it is. That we, we want, in one sense, we, we work it out this way. I just want to say thank you, which I, I get. It's true. But the other sense is I don't want to be obligated to anybody. Do you know that actually is true even in your relationship with God? But sometimes we just don't want to feel obligated. Well, you're never obligated. You're never obligated because what he gave you, you couldn't purchase. So here's no part from him to say, now you owe me this. Instead, I freely give this. What you couldn't pay, I paid for. And so that's why, as you see Paul reasoning, you know, <laughs> you started this way, but now you're going to shift over to Here? Try to pay the debt, but you, you're not called to pay the debt. You went through very difficult things, hard things, suffered through things there in verse 4. Was it was it of no purpose? Because you now are going to take him jump-starting your motor, and you're going to run the vehicle, which is not what happened. You didn't get a jump-start. You got a complete transplant. It's a whole different motor, so to speak. And so here, as he's reasoning through, carrying this to verse 5, He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you. This is interesting because that means they had a personal experience with the living God. They'd seen certain things in their personal history from the time they were born of the Spirit and following Christ to the time they're a recipient of this letter. They had certain things that were real to them, just like you. Things that other people can't understand. You try to explain it to them, and they're like, whatever. It sounds like a bunch of coincidences to me. You, you can't get it because you are trying to articulate a piece that surpasses understanding. Think about what that says. It's a piece, something you have a calmness about because you knew God was in it, and you can't, they won't understand it because it's a piece that surpasses understanding, so it's hard to put into clarity. You have this experience. They had this experience. And you say, now that you've had this experience, are you trying now to to complete everything through your own efforts? When when you've seen these things taking place, was it because you were obedient to to the law? The law here is referencing morality, ethics, principles, performance. To the Jew, he would translate that, so to speak, into the law, capital L, the Ten Commandments. To a non-Jew, they're like, well, I just got to be a good citizen, be a good person. He's saying, did did this experience you have come because you were doing good things? Or was it because you heard the truth of the gospel and by faith you believed it? You see what's happening? It's really interesting because we want to always, like I say, we want to finish well. So we want to back away sometimes and go, wait a minute. I just don't want to start doing things to receive something. I want to know that I've received new life. And now I'm learning how to live in that new life. And we'll get to that here as we work through this text. Now, you may think as they were presented and, and people had argued in trying to coerce them that the purpose of the law was to bring about perfection. And the gospel says that's not the purpose of the law. That's not what the law is there for. So, well, then you would ask, well, what's the point? What, what purpose did the law serve? And, of course, we would glance now if you'll join me there in verse 19. What purpose, then, does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed, speaking of Christ, should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. Verse 22, But but the Scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our our schoolmaster, our tutor, to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So it's really fascinating as you consider this portion because you see he's, he's working through what the law was about. Is the law against the promises of God? By no means. It's not against the promises of God. Actually, the law had a very important purpose. The purpose of the law, functionally, practically, simply stated, was to show you you can't save yourself. Was to show you you actually needed a Savior. The law, all it did was was show you and I and anyone who is a truth seeker that you couldn't accomplish it on your own. It just showed you what was that reality. I compare it to a, a thermostat. A thermostat right now would tell you outside it's 26 degrees or whatever it is. The thermostat didn't make it 26 degrees. The thermostat just tells you the state, the, what's, what it is. And much as the law. The law just said you're, you're a lawbreaker. It proved it. And being a law breaker, then you need forgiveness. Then you need someone to deal with your lawlessness or your law breaking. And sometimes we perceive that the law—these for you and I—we're not of Jewish background, so for the most part, so we would think you know, the law, meaning the principle, the the. Being a moral person, being an ethical person, being an upstanding citizen, be a good person. If I do these things, then God will see me differently. No, no, that's not what it is. In regards to salvation, those things carry no weight. And sanctification, that's a different discussion, of course. But in regards to salvation, you're only made right through Jesus Christ. The law showed you that you need forgiveness, that you need a, a savior, The scriptures has confined all under sin. Everyone is in this condition. So let's, let's consider, as I mentioned at the start of our times this, this morning, the, the three things I wanted to look at. You know, I wanted to consider the trial, which we've looked at there in um, Galatians chapter 3. Let's consider the truth. What's the truth that's the core of this particular chapter? It's really the center point, for the most part, of this letter. It's an important element in your life and in my life. We see it in two, two places that I think are very specific, and they, they summarize and condense the point very well, like verse 11. But that no one is justified by the law and the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. So he's presenting this logic, this argument, if you would, that Abraham was saved by faith. And he's using him as an example of how this principle, this trusting in God is presented. We see also, if you look there in verse 22, but the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So it's confined all under sin that those who believe would know this, this life, by faith in Christ might be given to those who believe this, this, this promise of forgiveness, this promise of his, his work in your life. That's the truth. It's something that we want to guard in such a way that we realize, I don't want to, I want to wander off course just a little bit. Well, maybe I'm just a one or two degrees off. What can that hurt? Well, anybody who has done anything with ballistics like, say, target practice or whatever, you, you know when you miss something by uh, an inch at 50 yards, that's compounded the further you go. We know that anybody who has done anything in regards to navigation, like aeronautical, like, like aviation, when you're only off one degree, that's not far in 40 miles. But 1,500 miles later, you're way off course. And so we want to recognize, I don't want, I don't want to give in. I don't want to just give this a little bit of room. I want to recognize that, you know, the promise by faith in Jesus Christ is given to those who believe. I, I am a born-again person. You're a born-again Christian if you put your faith in Christ. And so you have this new life. But, you know, think about it. What does this life of faith look like? Is it it because of attendance and and the fact that you're here on a Sunday morning and and the fact that, you know, maybe you attend regularly or do different things, is is that what it looks like? Well, I I think there's certain elements of that. But just consider this. What is this life of faith? Let's break it down. So it's a new life. And a new life would, I think we could say, would produce a lifestyle. I even looked up the word lifestyle to kind of make sure I had a a clarity. I find this interesting, the definition for a lifestyle. Think about this. When you're born again, born of the Spirit, you put your faith in Christ, what's your lifestyle? Well, think about a lifestyle. It's the habits, attitudes, um, tastes, moral standards, economic level, level, etc., that together constitute the mode of living for a group or an individual. So you think about that. So it's, it's just really what we choose to do and who we hang with. And so it's interesting because our lifestyle changes. I don't, you know, before I was in this capacity that I'm currently in, where I'm before you're teaching the word, but when I was, you know, attending, if you would, I didn't have to come to church to be saved. Because I was saved, I wanted to know what that was. I wanted to know this new life. And so I found myself hungering for that. And so I, I would go to something that was announced. Hey, there's this taking place or there's that happening. And so I, I, I would go. Just, I just wanted to grow. And guess what I'd meet there? Other people that were doing the same thing. I wasn't just an individual as a part of a group. And I'm changing my life. Now, someone on the outside would see my lifestyle variance or change. And, and one person said it this way. Yeah, so Davis, what's your deal? You got that religion and you're all doing different stuff now. See, you see what he said? You got that religion. He only seen the outside. For his observation, I was, a try, I was trying to get right with God. But for what my experience, it was, was something quite a bit different. My experience is with this. The Bible speaks of to you and me that there's this inner man or this new man. You see it in a couple of the New Testament letters. The new man is one who's born of the Spirit. Well, what's the difference in expression or even motivation? Well, the new man is spiritually minded, where the old man, the old nature, the uh, the outer man, or the Bible even calls it the flesh. The flesh is not talking about your, your body covering, the skin, you know what I mean, medically speaking. It's talking about something else. It's specifically talking about your, your old nature. Well, the new man is spiritually minded, whereas the old man is mindful of sensual desires and pleasures. Sensual desires are that which appeal to the senses. And so we have those body appetites, and we're given to those. So now, let's just take it back. You're born again, but you weren't. But now you are, but before you were, you lived a certain way. And now that you're born again, a new person, you have new appetites. And you're making choices, even though there's a habit, a behavioral pattern, sometimes even a form of almost addiction to the old nature, you're choosing to live differently. Do you see the difference? You're not choosing, you're not trying to be different. It's because you're literally living a new lifestyle. And I would say uh, this lifestyle This life of faith is a life of gratitude and thankfulness. Because as we understand, and the more we travel with the Lord, the more we have this Christian Christ-following experience, the more we realize our our darkness, our depravity, at the depth of of, of kind of our, our thoughts that even your spouse or your closest friends don't know about you. Those thoughts that passed by and those things that go through. Well, when we, re- we, we, we realize those and we instantly realize we're forgiven, that God has taken care of that, man, you, you just become more and more grateful. Not only is this life of faith a, a life of gratitude, but it's also a life of learning, learning to love in the way that God loves. Because you know how to love, at least however you would define it, you probably use that word in different ways forms. But much of that love is oriented to the senses. It's oriented to certain types of pleasure that are related to relationships. And his love is different. So his love is a love that, that um, it just, it, it's, it's an inner love. It's, it's, a, it's something different in this, this way. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, that we could be his children. The love that, that literally empowered Jesus to go to the cross and literally took him to the grave and took him to literally to bodily, physically ascend into heaven. That's the very love that's implanted in you and me. Now, I don't know how that works, but I do know that it's to be worked out of me. I do know that I, you, wouldn't, we would all say this at, at one point. Someone would say, well, you just got to be more loving. It's like, I will, but I don't like that person. And there's people in your life you just don't like. And you know you can't love them of your own ab- efforts. Hopefully you're not married to them or they're not a close sibling or something like that. But they're just, you know, they're just those people. You can't love them of your own ability. But this is a different manner of love. This is a love took Jesus to the cross and raised him from the dead and is implanted within you. And now you can say, God, I can't love that person. I'm not even sure I want to. But you love me in your love. And you you would enable and empower me. So first, help me to want to. And second, empower me, show me how to do it, how to live out this love you've given me. Because here's the thing you got saved you became a christian a christ follower because of his grace you had nothing to bring to the deal you didn't know how to love you didn't know how to like you didn't there's so much you didn't know but now you're born again so you you literally were dependent upon him to get you started guess what we're still dependent upon him that's the beauty of the relationship we continue to say no matter if you've been a christian for 5 minutes or 65 years you continue to say god I need you help me to love in this way help me help me love to be expressed from me it's sad when we get so far along that we can talk about love but we no longer to rely on him to teach us how to love we've deviated we've wandered off course and we're it's not going to end well this is a new lifestyle for every one of us it's new today Even as you go home and work through things this week, whatever, you're going to be thinking, about. okay, how do I love in this new way, with this new ability? How do I forgive? How do I engage? How do I be concerned and care for other people? It's a new lifestyle. I I love it. I love the fact that um, this lifestyle is is, is expressed because of what's happening in here. I'm not trying to do that so people will notice that I do that. I just, there's some things in here that enable me to do it. It's God's presence, which we're going to get into here in just a second, that brings about transformation. This is our third point for today. Transformation. Verse 3, are you so foolish, having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Having started right, because we all start at the same spot. We're saved by the grace of God. It's his work that brings us to the awareness of our need in such a way that we cry out to him. And rely upon Him. So now we're born again, born of the Spirit, empowered by His love. And so we want to then continue in that. But as I've already mentioned, we tend to want to not be obligated to anyone, not to owe anyone, not to be indebted to anyone. So for some people, and I'll refer to a couple different situations, I say maybe even categories of, of how we do things, some try to verify their relationship with God by doing more for Him. So you start going to church, you maybe even have a born-again experience, and He's like, I want to I do more, I want to do this. And, I want, and, and, and there's maybe a gratitude, but sometimes I just want to know that He's with me. I want to do things so He's at, at ease with me and He's not unhappy with me. Sometimes people think God's unhappy with them. Because they're not doing enough. Do you see how that shouldn't be connected? It should not be tied together? It's exhausting because you are relying on your efforts and strength. Working to please God is painful, unpleasant, unprofitable, and very foolish because you can't work to please Him. The one thing that we're told that without, there's, without something, it, it's not possible to please God It's in Hebrews chapter 11. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. And it's literally without believing that he is God. And so God, I I don't know how to live this life. I don't know how to express this love. I need your help. Show me how it is. Help me to, to know you in a deeper way. And so I'm not working to do it. I'm requesting to know it. Some, you know, as they're trying to work out what the Galatians were working out, how do I live this faith? How do I live this life? What does it look like? You know, some work to have new experiences. That is, they, they're, they're, they're wanting a new encounter or event or experience to verify that God is with them. That longing for new experiences is not a bad thing. Let's just not make it an attachment that when I have those, that verifies that God is with me. Some, for pleasure or perhaps because they're mistaken, they base their faith in God upon the experiences they have when they feel spiritually dry or perhaps weak or lonely or or you know they may you know just be a certain state they look for an experience to lift them up the problem is the experiences leave us longing for more experiences or events or happenings and though now. Understand, when I'm sharing this and talking about this, we're reading, the Bible is about experiences, agreed? I mean, it's about Noah, it's about Moses, it's about Adam, fill in the blanks. It's about experiences. But understand that that the, the, the experiences are important. They're even wonderful insight to God's promises. Promises precede the experience and exist whether we have a preferred spiritual experience or not. So maybe you have a preferred spiritual experience. You may go to an event or maybe even come to church. You're preferred. I hope this happens because that will help me to know that God's with me. And, you know, it could help you. But if the experience doesn't happen, why didn't God listen to you? Why did God depart from you? Why couldn't God help you? See, what we want to realize is the promises precede the experiences. And if we have those moments where it's just uplifting and exciting, great. There's nothing wrong with those. Let's just not make those the foundation of what we believe because we will find ourselves always looking for something bigger and better and more important. God, let me say it this way, and I'm going to talk about three points in this sentence. God, in person... Bringing your understanding, bringing to your understanding the knowledge of his promises and of his power to fulfill those promises, that's the foundational reality that ushers in or that brings in personal transformation in person. What I mean there is the Holy Spirit, the Bible teaches us this is a promise, it's a truth, that when you're born again, the Holy Spirit indwells you, takes up residence within you, is what we're told. And he guides you in truth. He's with you. So the Holy Spirit dwells you as a Christ, indwells you as a Christ follower. And God will never leave you or abandon you. The word is maybe you're familiar with forsake. It speaks to abandon or desert. He'll never desert you. God will never leave you. So he's with us in person. He's, he brings the knowledge of his promises. He doesn't just expect us to figure this out by reading the Bible more. He actually brings us the knowledge of his promises. How does he do that? When we're told in John chapter 14 through 16, Jesus speaking to his disciples who were needing to know this truth in just a few days, especially to them, that the Holy Spirit would guide them in truth and that the Holy Spirit would bring to their remembrance the things that Jesus said. So we read the Bible, we recognize the truth, but we need him to reveal it in a personal application way. So he brings to our remembrance the things that Jesus has said. So he convicts the world of sin and the righteousness and judgment, as well as the individuals too. So we have his presence. We have the knowledge of his promises. And the power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that enables you to walk in the truth of the gospel. So once again, it's not just as so contemporary teaching too strongly emphasizes Your performance and what you can do and all these things you have to do. The power to live this life is present in the person Jesus Christ, revealed through the Holy Spirit who resides within you, bringing the knowledge of these promises to you and enabling you by his power to live according to the gospel. And most of us in various seasons try to live according to our own effort. And according to, I, got, I just got to do this. Yes, you get to do it, but understand, he enables you. You began by faith. That's why you were born again. You had nothing to bring. And he is faithful to continue to teach you how to live that way. Um, promises precede the experience and exist whether we have an uplifting experience or not. I want to I present to you one out of the Old Testament real briefly. There's a guy in the Old Testament by the name of Elijah. Elijah has this powerful experience on Mount Carmel. I was able to uh, go there back in September of, of last year. And there's an interesting statue there about him, you know, this victory that he has over these false worshipers and all these that were leading people astray. And he has this powerful victory. You remember it maybe, you know, he's, he, he, he invites these other false, you know, leaders, worshipers to, to you know, start this fire. And, and, and have their God start this fire. And then he says, okay, nice try. My turn. Put on the water. And he just has them saturate everything. And then God goes, boom, like it was gas. Just literally ignites it. And then he has, he's victorious over these, all these different false leaders, false prophets and everything. Then he's threatened by their leader, Jezebel, who says, you know what? You're dead, dude. By tomorrow morning, you're going to have the same thing happen to you that happened to them. And what does he do? You see that little logo on the back of your in your trunk? You'll look now. Pop your trunk up. You'll see this guy. That's that's Elijah. He is leaving. He's like bolting. He runs and hides in a cave. And this is what he says: "God, take my life. I would rather be. I'm better off dead. I'm better off dead." He was like in this weird funk, in this state, like, ugh. An angel appears and gives him food and water. You want to talk about power bar? Gives him food and water and sends him on a 40-day journey. And I'm thinking he's still in run mode. You know what I'm saying? 40 days. And he goes into another cave, which was not uncommon. That's kind of a protective area for, you know, when you need to rest. He goes into this cave where God asks him, What are you doing, Elijah? What, what are you doing? Oh, man, I, I, I've really been having a tough time. Nobody understands. Nobody realizes what I'm going through. I have no hope. And practically, I have no real help. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 11. Then God said, go out. And stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire... A still, small voice. And it really could be translated a delicate, whispering voice. Now catch the experience. Here's the experience, the power. Think of the power when it says that this strong wind broke into the mountains. And after the wind and earthquake, that's going to rock your world. Okay, right? I mean, this is, we're talking serious stuff. And that represents power and presence. But the Lord wasn't in it. In other words, he wasn't like, yeah, right, because of this, I know. He wasn't in the the earthquake. And then a fire, probably lightning, I'm guessing, I'm not sure. He wasn't in the fire. All these things would really stimulate your senses. That's an experience. But catch this. There was a delicate whispering voice that was brought to him. And this is why I I look at this and go, wow. Wow. And it says there in verse thirteen, yeah, um, verse thirteen is so. It was when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly, a voice came to him and said, "What are you doing here, Elijah? What was that a corrective voice? What are you doing, Elijah? You can't conclude that." Because you've already been told it was a delicate, whispering voice. Elisha? Eli? What are you doing? What are you doing? It wasn't like, you know what i overbearing. It was just delicate, whispering voice. And I believe what we see from this, and related to what we're looking at in Galatians, is it's not the experience of this natural realm. It's the supernatural encounter in an intimate way where God says, what are you doing? what are you doing and I love it because you know he's he's like you he's like me he's kind of in a little bit of poor me syndrome a little pity party going on and and God doesn't even he just kind of moves on with him he just keeps him going he just continues to take him because Elijah answers and well, I've been jealous for you and I've done this for you and I've done that for you and God just says you just keep moving I mean, Elijah says so much about how he has it so tough. And, and God in no way says, you don't have it that bad. He did have it tough. He was working through a hard season of his life. But God said, Eli, what are you doing? Come on, let's go. Let's go. Not move away from something, but come close to me. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that enables us to walk in the truth of the gospel. What's the power? It's the person of God that's with us. So often we think of principles and practices and things we can put into motion, but never forget, God never leaves you nor forsake you. Even then we don't feel, have you ever felt like God's with you? I have. Have you ever felt like God's not with you? More than the other. Like, I don't know how it feels. I don't know how I'm supposed to make it work. But I do believe the promises are not tied to those feelings. The promises are set and fixed and accomplished by him perfectly. So therefore, it's like, God, I'm just going to hold on to what is true because the promises precede the experience and exist. Whether I have an uplifting experience or not, the promises are still there. So truth, trials, transformation, and out of time. So turn with me back to Galatians 3 worship team is going to come up in Galatians 3 we're going to look in closing in verses 26 to 29 I've always embraced this portion of scripture as I've tried to teach and understand and see the variables and variations of lives really over the last 30 years and especially the 23 years here in Mountain Home see so many people come and go and so many amazing representatives if you would of God, and really more, according to our study even, those who are living out this love. So let's consider what we see here in verse 26 to 29. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, because you're a believer, a follower of Christ. You were in the family, you're a part of the family. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, this new man. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Will you stand with me? God, Just think about how as God has shown us these things. I want to just cl- conclude with this reality. God has done a unique work in your life. You are an individual, yet you're interdependent. The Bible says that we make up the body of Christ. So my, my finger, something as little as the little finger, which does, it does very little, but it's completely dependent on my cardiovascular system. Agreed? It's interdependent. And, and that's why I believe God gives us this picture of the body. Each part needs the other parts. They're interdependent. So why I say that? Because there's unity, but not, we don't have to have uniformity. We don't have to always look and do and be the same person. That's not what God's called us to. There's unity with interdependence, interlocking, if you would. And I want to encourage you, you know, learn to see through eyes of love and and be an agent to help people do likewise. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for your grace, for your love. And I I just know I can just say myself, second time through this study today, I, I long for that love in a greater way. Not that it's not present, but that I would understand what it looks like, that I would see it in my own life more and more. And I pray that for all of us, God, that we would come into a closer walk with you, that you would speak to us in the private moments, in the very quiet times of our lives, where we would get away, so to speak, direct our attention to you, and remember to trust in you, that you would help us to walk by faith, that you would empower us because your power's there. They would show us how to stay close to you in hard times, in confusing times, in troubling times, Lord. And even in times when things are going well, we're very much at risk of leaning on ourselves, Lord. You know that. And so I just pray, God, for each of us. Pray for you. If you're hearing this message and you maybe haven't even started, I would just say, just it's really simple. You know you have issues. You know you have things you've done wrong. You know you need God's forgiveness. The only way by which you can receive that forgiveness is admitting you need it and putting your faith in Jesus Christ who died for your sins, rose from the dead, conquering death and hell. And as you put your faith in him, say, God, show me how to do this. Show me what this is. He'll teach you. He will show you this love that's now implanted within you, what it's like. God, we all need to know your love in a deeper way. Bring it out of us. Teach us and lead us. We sing to you, Jesus. It's in your glorious name we pray. Amen.